Part 1, Chapter 2 of A Man Could Stand Up by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. A Man Could Stand Up, Part 1, Chapter 2. Ten minutes later, she was putting to Miss Wannestrocht, firmly, if without ferocity, the question, Look here, Head, what did that woman say to you? I don't like her, I don't approve of her, and I didn't really listen to her, but I want to hear. Miss Wannestrocht, who had been taking her thin black cloth coat from its peg behind the highly varnished pitch-pine door of her own private cell, flushed, hung up her garment again, and turned from the door. She stood thin, a little rigid, a little flushed, faded, and a little, as it were, at bay. "'You must remember,' she began, "'that I am a schoolmistress.' She pressed with a gesture she consistently had the noticeably golden plait of her dun-coloured hair with the palm of her thin left hand. None of the gentlewomen of that school had had quite enough to eat for years now. It's, she continued, an instinct to accept any means of knowledge. I like you so much, Valentine, if in private you'll let me call you that. And it seemed to me that if you were in... In what? Valentine asked. Danger? Trouble? You understand, Miss Wannestrock replied, that person seemed as anxious to communicate to me facts about yourself as to give you, that was her ostensible reason for ringing you up, news about a, another person with whom you once had relations and who has reappeared. Ah, Valentine heard herself exclaim, he has reappeared, has he? I gathered as much. She was glad to be able to keep herself under control to that extent. Perhaps she did not have to trouble. She could not say that she felt changed from what she had been, just before ten minutes ago, by the reappearance of a man she hoped she had put out of her mind. A man who had insulted her. In one way or the other, he had insulted her. But probably all her circumstances had changed. Before Edith Ethel had uttered her impossible sentence in that instrument, her complete prospects had consisted of no more than the family picnic under fig trees beside an unusually blue sea, and the prospect had seemed as near, as near as kiss your finger, mother in black and purple, mother's secretary in black without adornments, brother, oh, a romantic figure, slight, muscular, in white flannels with a leghorn hat, and, well... Why not be romantic over one's brother, with a broad scarlet sash? One foot on shore, and one in a light skiff that gently bobbed in the lapping tide. Nice boy, nice little brother. Lately employed nautically, so up to managing a light skiff. They were going tomorrow, but why not that very afternoon, by the 4.20? They got the ships, they got the men, they got the money too. Thank goodness they'd got the money. The ships, sharing cross to Valambrosa, would no doubt run in a fortnight. The men, the porters, would also be released. You can't travel in any comfort with mother, mother's secretary and brother, with your whole world and its baggage, without lots of porters. Talk about rationed butter. What was that to trying to get on without porters? Once having begun it, her mind went on singing the old 1850-ish or 70-ish martial British anti-Russian patriotic song that one of her little friends had unearthed lately to prove the historic ferocity of his countrymen. We've fought the bear before, and so we will again. The Russian shall not have Constantino, she exclaimed suddenly. Oh. 
She had been about to say, oh hell, but the sudden recollection that the war had been over a quarter of an hour made her leave it at, oh. You would have to drop wartime phraseology. You became again a young lady. Peace, too, has its Defence of the Realm Acts. Nevertheless, she has been thinking of the man who had once insulted her as the bear whom she would have to fight again. But with warm generosity, she said, it's a shame to call him the bear. Nevertheless, he was, the man who was said to have reappeared with his problems and all, something devouring, overwhelming, with rolling grey shoulders that, with their intolerable problems, pushed you and your own problems out of the road. She had been thinking all that while still in the school hall, before she had gone to see the head. Immediately after, Edith Ethel, Lady McMaster, had uttered the intolerable sentence. She had gone on thinking there for a long time, ten minutes. She formulated for herself, summarily, the first item of a period of nasty worries, of a time she flattered herself she had nearly forgotten. Years ago, Edith Ethel, out of a clear sky, had accused her of having had a child by that man. But she hardly thought of him as a man. She thought of him as a ponderous, grey, intellectual mass, who now presumably was mooning, obviously dotty since he did not recognise the porter, behind the closed shutters of an empty house in Lincoln's Inn. Nothing less, I assure you. She had never been in that house, but she figured him, with cracks of light coming between the shutters, looking back over his shoulders at you in the doorway, grey, super ursine ready to envelop you in suffocating bothers. She wondered how long it had been since the egregious Edith Ethel had made that assertion, with, naturally, every appearance of indignation for the sake of the man's wife, with whom, equally naturally, Edith Ethel had sided. Now she was trying to bring you together again. The wife, presumably, did not go to Edith Ethel's tea parties often enough, or was too brilliantly conspicuous when there, probably the latter. How many years ago? Two? Not as much. Eighteen months then? Surely more. Surely, surely more. When you thought of time in those days, your mind wavered impotently like eyes tired by reading too small print. He went out, surely, in the autumn of... No, it had been the first time he went that he went in the autumn. It was her brother's friend, Ted, that went in sixteen. Or the other, Malaki. So many goings out and returnings, and goings out and perhaps not returning. Or only in bits, the nose gone, or both eyes, or, or hell, oh hell. And she clenched her fists, her nails into her palms. No mind. You'd think it must be that, from what Edith Ethel had said. He hadn't recognised the porter. He was reported to have no furniture. Then she remembered... She was then, ten minutes before she interviewed Miss Wannestrocht, ten seconds after she had been blown out of the mouth of the telephone, sitting on a varnished pitch-pine bench that had black iron clamped legs against the plaster wall, non-conformistically distempered in torpedo grey, and she had thought all that in ten seconds. But that had been really how it had been. The minute Edith Ethel had finished saying the words, "'The sum would be absolutely crushing,' Valentine had realised that she had been talking about a debt owed by her miserable husband to the one human being she, Valentine, could not bear to think about. It had naturally, at the same moment, flashed upon her that Edith Ethel had been giving her his news. He was in new troubles, broken down, broken up, broke to the wide, anything in the world but broken in, but broken, 
and alone, and calling for her. She could not afford, she could not bear to recall even his name, or to so much as bring up before her mind, into which nevertheless they were continually forcing themselves, his grey blonde face, his clumsy, square, reliable feet, his humpish bulk, his calculatedly wooden expression, his perfectly overwhelming but authentic omniscience, his masculinity, his, his frightfulness. Now, through Edith Ethel, you would have thought that even he would have found someone more appropriate. He was calling to her again to enter into the suffocating web of his imbroglios. Not even Edith Ethel would have dared to speak to her again of him without his having taken the first step. It was unthinkable. It was intolerable. And it had been as if she had been lifted off her feet and deposited on that bench against the wall by the mere sound of the offer. What was the offer? I thought that you might, if I were the means of bringing you together, she might, what? Intercede with that man, that grey mass, not to enforce the pecuniary claim that it had against Sir Vincent McMaster? No doubt she and the grey mass would then be allowed the McMaster drawing room to, to discuss the ethics of the day in, just like that. She was still breathless. The telephone continued to quack. She wished it would stop, but she felt too weak to get up and hang the receiver on its hook. She wished it would stop. It gave her the feeling that a strand of Edith Ethel's hair, say, was penetrating nauseously to her torpedo-grey cloister. Something like that. The grey mass never would enforce its pecuniary claim. Those people had sponged mercilessly on him for years and years without ever knowing the kind of object upon which they sponged. It made them the more pitiful. For it was pitiful in clamour to be allowed to become a pimp in order to evade debts that would never be reclaimed. Now, in the empty rooms at Lincoln's Inn, for that was probably what it came to, that man was a grey ball of mist, a grey bear rolling tenebrously about an empty room with closed shutters, a grey problem calling to her. A hell of a lot, beg pardon, she meant a remarkably great deal to have thought of in ten seconds. Eleven by now, probably. Later she realised that that was what thought was. In ten minutes, after large impassive arms had carried you away from a telephone and deposited you on a clamped bench against a wall of the peculiar coldness of torpedo grey distempered plaster, the sort of thing rejoiced in by great public girls' schools, in those ten minutes you found you thought out more than in two years. Or was it not as long as that? Perhaps that was not astonishing if you had not thought about, say, washable distemper for two years and then thought about it for ten minutes, you could think a hell of a lot about it in those ten minutes. Probably all there was to think. Still, of course, washable distemper was not like the poor always with you. At least it always was in those cloisters, but not spiritually. On the other hand, you always were with yourself. But perhaps you were not always with yourself spiritually. He went on, explaining how to breathe without thinking of how the life you were leading was influencing your, what, immortal soul, aura, personality, something. Well, for two years, I'll call it two years for goodness sake and get it over, she must have been in, well, call that a state of suspended animation and get that over too, a sort of what they call inhibition. She had been inhibiting, prohibiting herself from thinking about herself. 
Well, hadn't she been right? What had a bloody pro-German to think about in an embattled, engrossed, clamouring nation, especially when she had not much liked her brother prose? A solitary state, only to be dissolved by maroons in suspension. But be conscientious with yourself, my good girl. When that telephone blew you out of its mouth, you knew, really, that for two years you had been avoiding wondering whether you had not been insulted. Avoiding wondering that, and nothing else, no other qualified thing. She had, of course, been not in suspension, but in suspense. Because, if he made a sign, I understand, Edith Ethel had said, that you have not been in correspondence, or had it been in communication that she had said. Well, they hadn't been either. Anyhow, if that grey problem, that ravelled ball of grey knitting worsted, had made a sign, she would have known that she had not been insulted. Or was there any sense in that? Was it really true that if a male and female of the same species were alone in a room together and the male didn't, then it was an insult? That was an idea that did not exist in a girl's head without someone to put it there, but once it had been put there, it became a luminous veracity. It had been put into her, Valentine Wanup said, naturally, by Edith Ethel, who equally naturally said that she did not believe it, but that it was a tenet of, oh, the man's wife, of the idol surpassing the Lillian Solomon too, surprisingly svelte, tall, clean-run creature who, forever on the shiny paper of illustrated journals, advanced towards you with improbable strides along the railings of the row, laughing, in company with the Honourable Somebody, second son of Lord Someone or other. Edith Ethel was more refined. She had a title, whereas the other hadn't, but she was pensive. She showed you that she had read Walter Savage Landor and had only very lately given up wearing opaque amber beads as affected by the later pre-Raphaelites. She was practically never in the illustrated papers, but she held more refined views. She held that there were some men who were not like that, and those, all of them, were the men to whom Edith Ethel accorded the entree to her afternoons. She was their Egeria, a refining influence. The husband of the wife, then? Once he had been allowed in Edith Ethel's drawing-room. Now he wasn't. Must have deteriorated. She said to herself sharply in her no-nonsense-there mood, Chuck it. You're in love with a married man who's a society wife and you're upset because the titled lady has put into your head the idea that you might come together again after ten years. But immediately she protested, No, 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 it isn't like that. It's all right, the habit of putting things incisively, but it's misleading to put things too crudely. What was the coming together that was offered her? Nothing on the face of it, but being dragged again into that man's intolerable worries as unfortunate machinists are dragged into wheels by belts and all the flesh torn off their bones. Upon her word, that had been her first thought. She was afraid. 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 She suddenly appreciated the advantages of nun-like seclusion. Besides, she wanted to be bashing policemen with bladders in celebration of 11-11. That fellow, he had no furniture. He did not appear to recognise the hall porter. Dotty, dotty, and too morally deteriorated to be admitted to drawing-room of titled lady, the frequenters of which could be trusted not to make love to you on insufficient provocation, if left alone with you. Her generous mind reacted painfully. Oh, that's not fair, she said. 
There were all sorts of sides to the unfairness. Before this war, and of course before he had lent all his money to Vincent McMaster, that that grey grizzly had been perfectly fit for the country parsonage drawing room of Edith Ethel Ducherman. He had been welcomed there with effusion. After the war, and when his money was presumably exhausted, and his mind exhausted, for he had no furniture and did not know the porter, after the war then, and when his money was exhausted, he was not fit for the salon of Lady McMaster, the only lady to have a salon in London. It was what she called kicking down your ladder. Obviously, it had to be done. There were such a lot of these bothering war heroes that if you let them all into your salon, it would cease to be a salon, particularly if you were under obligations to them. That was already a pressing national problem. It was going to become an overwhelming one now, in twenty minutes' time, after those maroons. The impoverished war heroes would all be coming back, innumerable. You would have to tell your parlour-maid that you weren't at home, about seven million. But wait a minute, where did they just stand? He, but she could not go on calling him just he, like a schoolgirl of eighteen, thinking of her favourite actor, in the purity of her young thoughts. What was she to call him? She had never, even when they had known each other, called him anything other than Mr. So-and-so. She could not bring herself to let her mental lips frame his name. She had never used anything but his surname to this grey thing, familiar object of her mother's study, seen frequently at tea parties. Once she had been out with him for a whole night in a dog cart, think of that, and they had spouted to bullis one to another in moonlit mist, and she had certainly wanted it to kiss her. In the moonlit mists, a practically, a really, completely strange bear. It couldn't be done, of course, but she remembered still how she had shivered. Shivering. She shivered. Afterwards, they had been run into by the car of General Lord Edward Campion, V.C.P.G., heaven knows what, godfather of the Men's Society wife, then taking the waters in Germany. Or perhaps not her godfather. The man's, rather, but her a special champion in shining armour. In these days they had worn broad red stripes down the outsides of their trousers. Generals. What a change. How significant of the times. That had been in 1912. Say the 1st of July. She could not remember exactly. Summer weather, anyhow. Before haymaking, or just about. The grass had been long in Hogg's 40 acre when they had walked through it, discussing woman's suffrage. She had brushed the seed-tops of the heavy grass with her hands as they walked, say, the first of the seventh twelve. Now it was eleven-eleven. What? Oh, eighteen, of course. Six years ago. What changes in the world? What cataclysms? What revolutions? She heard all the newspapers, all the halfpenny-paper journalists in creation crying in chorus. But hang it, it was true. If six years ago she had kissed the, the greyish lacuna in her mind, then sitting beside her on the dog-cart seat, it would have been the larkish freak of a schoolgirl. If she did it today, as per invitation, presumably of Lady McMaster, bringing them together, for of course it could not be performed from a distance or without correspondence, no communication, if then she did it today, today... Today, the 11-11, oh, what a day today would be. Not her sentiments, those. Quotation from Christina, sister of Lady McMaster's favourite poet. Or perhaps, since she had had a title, she would have found poets more, 
more chic. The poet who was killed at Gallipoli. Gerald Osborne, was it? Couldn't remember the name. But for six years then, she'd been a member of that triangle. You couldn't call it a menage à trois, even if you didn't know French. They hadn't lived together. They had damn near died together when the general's car hit their dog cart. Damn near. You must not use those wartime idioms. Do break yourself of it. Remember the Maroons. An oafish thing to do. To take a schoolgirl, just oh, just past the age of consent, out all night in a dog cart, and then get yourself run into by the car of the VCPG champion in red trouser stripe of your legitimate. You think any man who was a man would have avoided that. Most men knew enough to know that the woman pays the schoolgirl too. But they get it both ways. Look here. When Edith Ethel Dusherman then, just or perhaps not quite Lady McMaster, at any rate, her husband was dead and she had just married that miserable little, mustn't use that word. She, Valentine Wanoff, had been the only witness of the marriage, as of the previous discreet but so praiseworthy adultery. When then Edith Ethel had... It must have been on the very day of the knighthood, because Edith Ethel made it an excuse not to ask her to the resultant party. Edith Ethel had accused her of having had a baby by, oh, Mr. So-and-so. And heaven was her Valentine Wanup's witness that although Mr. So-and-so was her mother's constant adviser, she, Valentine Wanup, was still in such a state of acquaintance with him that she still called him by his surname. When Lady McMaster, spitting like the South American beast of burden called a llama, had accused her of having had a baby by her mother's adviser, to her natural astonishment, but of course it had been the result of the dog cart and the motor and the general and the general's sister, Lady Pauline something, or perhaps it was Claudine, yes, Lady Claudine, who had been in the car and the society wife, who was always striding along the railings of the row. When she had been so accused out of the blue, her first thought, and confounded her enduring thought, had not been concerned for her own reputation, but for his. That was the quality of his entanglements, their very essence. He got into appalling messes, unending and unravelable. No, she meant ununravelable. Messes, and other people suffered for him while he mooned on into more messes. The general charging the dogcart was symbolical of him. He was perfectly on his right side and all, but it was like him to be in a dogcart when flagitious automobiles carrying generals were running amuck. Then the woman paid. She really did in this case. It had been her mother's horse they had been driving, and although they had got damages out of the general, the costs were twice that, and her, Valentine's, reputation had suffered from being in a dogcart at dawn, alone with a man. It made no odds that he had, or was it hadn't, insulted her in any way all through that, oh, that delicious, delirious night. She had to be said to have a baby by him, and then she had to be dreadfully worried about his poor old reputation. Of course, it would have been pretty rotten of him. She was so young and innocent, daughter of so preposterously eminent of so impoverished a man, his father's best friend and all. He hadn't ought done it. He hadn't really, order. She heard them all saying it still. Well, he hadn't. But she? That magic night. It was just before dawn, the mists nearly up to their necks as they drove, the sky going pale in a sort of twilight, and one immense star. 
She remembered only one immense star, though historically there had been also a dilapidated sort of moon. But the star was her best boy, what her wagon was hitched onto, and they had been quoting, quarrelling over, she remembered, Flebus et Asurome, Delia Lecto, Tristibus et... She exclaimed suddenly, Twilight and evening star, and one clear call for me, and may there be no moaning at the bar when I... She said, Oh, but you oughtn't to, my dear. That's Tennyson. Tennyson with a difference. She said, All the same, that would have been an inexperienced schoolgirl's prank. But if I let him kiss me now, I should be... She would be, what was it? A fornicatress? Tricks? Fornicatrix is preferable. Very preferable. Then why not adulterix? You couldn't. You had to be a cold-blooded adulteress or morality was not avenged. Oh, but surely not cold-blooded. Deliberate, then. That wasn't either the word for the process of auscultation. Comic things, words, as applied to states of feelings. But if she went now to Lincoln's Inn and the problem held out its arms, that would be deliberate. She would be asking for it in the fullest sense of the term. She said to herself quickly, This way madness lies. And then, what an imbecile thing to say. She had had an affair with a man. She made her mind say to her two years ago. That was all right. There could not be a, say, a schoolmistress rising 24 or 25 in the world who hadn't had some affair, even if it were no more than a gentleman in a tea shop who every afternoon for a week had gazed at her disrespectfully over a slice of plum cake and then disappeared. But you had to have had at least a might have been, or you couldn't go on being a schoolmistress or a girl in a ministry or a dactylographer of respectability. You packed that away in the bottom of your mind, and on Sunday mornings before the perfectly insufficient Sunday dinner, you took it out and built castles in Spain in which you were a castaneted heroine turning on wonderful hips, but casting behind you in flaming glances. Something like that. Well... She had had an affair with this honest, simple creature. So good, so unspeakably good. Like the late Albert, Prince Consort. The very helpless, immobile sort of creature that she ought not to have tempted. It had been like shooting tame pigeons. Because he had had a society wife, always in the illustrated papers, while he sat at home and evolved statistics, or came to tea with her dear, tremendous, distracted mother, whom he helped to get her articles accurate. So a woman tempted him, and he did. No, he didn't quite eat. But why? Because he was good? Very likely. Or was it? That was the intolerable thought that she shut up within her along with the material for castles in the air. Was it because he had been really indifferent? They had revolved round each other at tea parties. Or rather, he had revolved around her. Because at Edith Ethel's affairs, she always sat, a fixed starlet, behind the tea urn and dispensed cups. But he would moon round the room, looking at the backs of books, occasionally laying down the law to some guest, and always drifting in the end to her side, where he would say a trifle or two. And the beautiful wife, the quite excruciatingly beautiful wife, striding along the row with the second son of the Earl of someone at her side, asking for it. So it had been from the first of the seventh twelve, say, to the fourth of the eighth fourteen. After that, things had become more rubbled, mixed up with alarums. 
excursions on his part to unapproved places, and trouble. He was quite damnably in trouble with his superiors, with so unnecessarily hun projectiles, wire, mud, over money, politics, mooning on without a good word from anyone, unravelable muddles that never got unravelled but that somehow got you caught up in them. Because he needed her moral support. When, during the late hostilities, he hadn't been out there, he had drifted to the tea-table much earlier of an afternoon and stayed beside it much longer, till after everyone else had gone and they could go and sit on the tall fender side by side and argue about the rights and wrongs of the war. Because she was the only soul in the world with whom he could talk. They had the same sort of good bread-and-butter brains, without much of the romantic, no doubt a touch, in him. Otherwise he would not have always been in these muddles. He gave all he possessed to anyone who asked for it. That was all right. But that those who sponged on him should also involve him in intolerable messes, that was not proper. One ought to defend oneself against that. Because if you do not defend yourself against that, look how you let in your nearest and dearest, those who have to sympathise with you in your confounded troubles whilst you moon on, giving away more and more and getting into more troubles. In this case it was she who was his nearest and dearest, or had been. At that her nerves suddenly got the better of her and her mind went mad. Supposing that that fellow, from whom she had not heard for two years, hadn't now communicated with her. Like an ass, she had taken for granted that he had asked Lady Blaster to bring them together again. She had imagined that even Edith Ethel would not have had the cheek to ring her up if he hadn't asked her to. But she had nothing to go on. Feeble, oversexed ass that she was, she had to let her mind jump at once to the conclusion, the moment the mere mention of him seemed implied, jump to the conclusion that he was asking her again to come and be his mistress, or nurse him through his present muddle till he should be fit to... Mind, she did not say that she would have succumbed, but if she had not jumped at the idea that it was he, really, speaking through Edith Ethel, she would never have permitted her mind to dwell on on his blasted, complacent perfections. Because she had taken it for granted that if he had had her rung up, he would not have been monkeying with other girls during the two years he hadn't written to her. Ah, but hadn't he? Look here, was it reasonable? He was a fellow who had all but, all but, taken advantage of her one night just before going out to France, say, two years ago, and not another word for him after that. It was all very well to say that he was portentous, looming, luminous, loony, John Peel with his coat so grey, the English country gentleman pure sang, and then some saintly, godlike, Jesus Christ-like. He was all that. But you don't seduce, as near as can be, a young woman, and then go off to hell, leaving her, God knows, in hell, and not so much as send her in two years a picture postcard with Mizpar on it. You don't. You don't. Or if you do, you have to have your character revised. You have to have it taken for granted that you were only monkeying with her and that you've been monkeying ever since with wax in Rouen or some other base. Of course, if you ring your young woman up when you come back or have her rung up by a titled lady, that might restore you in the eyes of the world, or at least in the eyes of the young woman, if she were a bit of a softy. But had he? Had he? It was absurd to think that Edith Ethel hadn't had the face to do it unasked. To save three thousand two hundred pounds, not to mention interest, which was what Vincent owed him. 
Edith Ethel, with the sweetest possible smile, would beg the pillows of a whole hospital ward full of dying. She was quite right. She had to save her man. You go to any depths of ignominy to save your man. But that did not help her, Valentine Wannop. She sprang off the bench. She clenched her nails into her palms. She stamped her thin-soled shoes into the coke-breeze floor that was singularly unresilient. She exclaimed, Damn it all! He didn't ask her to ring me up. He didn't ask her to. He didn't ask her to. Still stamping about. She marched straight at the telephone that was by now uttering long, tinny nightjars calls and with one snap pulled the receiver right off the twisted green-blue cord, broke it with incidental satisfaction. Then she said, Steady the buffs, not out of repentance for having damaged school property, but because she was accustomed to call her thoughts the buffs because of their practical, unromantic character as a rule. A fine regiment, the buffs. Of course, if she had not broken the telephone, she could have rung up Edith Ethel and have asked her whether he had or hadn't asked to, to be brought together again. It was like her, Valentine Wallop, to smash the only means of resolving a torturing doubt. It wasn't, really, in the least like her. She was practical enough, none of the under-the-ban of fatality business about her. She had smashed the telephone because it had been like smashing a connection with Edith Ethel, or because she hated tinny nightjars, or because she had smashed it. For nothing in the world, for nothing, nothing, nothing in the world, would she ever ring up Edith Ethel and ask her, Did he put you up to ringing me up? That would be to let Edith Ethel come between their intimacy. The subconscious volition was directing her feet towards the great doors at the end of the hall, varnished pitch-pine doors of Gothic architecture, economically decorated as if with straps and tin lids of Brunswick blacked cast iron. She said, of course it's his wife who has removed his furniture. That would be a reason for his wanting to get into communication. They would have split. But he does not hold with a man divorcing a woman, and she won't divorce. As she went through the sticky postern, all that woodwork seemed sticky on account of its varnish, beside the great doors, she said, Who cares? The great thing was, but she could not formulate what the great thing was. You had to settle the preliminaries. End of part one, chapter two.